0: As a 26-year-old, I was making 300000 a year and left all that behind to go become a professional poker player, which was probably one of the dumbest mistakes of my life, but also probably one of the best things of my life because those four years, five years where I was a professional poker player, I learned a lot. I had two properties that I owned, and some months I wasn't going to make my mortgage payments, and some months I had a lot of cash, and it's just learning how to manage your cash. A lot of skills that I learned from poker, today I use those, those skills when I'm
1: negotiating with someone. You can't learn that anywhere else. Welcome to the Road to 100 podcast a show for those of you who are out there building empires.
2: We're your hosts, Cody Littlewood and Pasha Esfendieri. Together, we'll embark on the journey to the coveted 100 million mark, as well as striving for excellence in every aspect of our lives. Here at The Road to 100, we believe that true success goes beyond financial prosperity. That's why we bring you insightful conversations
1: with top entrepreneurs and trailblazers who share their unfiltered experiences in building wealth, as well as cultivating fulfilling relationships and maintaining
2: optimal health. This podcast is perfect for ambitious entrepreneurs, health enthusiasts, and anyone seeking genuine and transformative insights from those who dare to go all out. Welcome to the Road to 100, and we will see you at the finish line
1: all right guys we have a special podcast i have a dear friend of mine from 15 years ago i think around that so just really happy to have you on uh, i think it's quite rare to run into somebody from the poker world and keep in contact with them over 15 years especially with the short duration of amount of time that we played together but there was that bond but also just what you're creating now in your in your career and everything so so i'm just so happy to have you here and, and I can't wait to kind of dig into your story because it's fascinating. And then I just want to get like right into it. Can you tell us a little bit about your background and and where, where you're at now? And then we'll go from there. Sure, and Pasha,
0: it's great to be here. And you're always one of my favorite people in poker. And you know, you know, you meet some good characters, some bad characters, some so-so characters. But you were always one of the good characters, and it's good. It's good that we we stayed in contact all these years. and So thank you for, for having me on. A
1: funny story. Funny story, Real. I'm sorry. I don't even cut you off. Funny story is that when I first, first got into real estate, I signed up for some wholesaling real estate residential convention. It was in Dallas and Optine. What? This is, I mean, so long ago, like 13 years ago or something like that. Let me stay on your couch. And I remember that, that you opened up your house for me, for me on my real estate career. And so it's kind of cool and nostalgic that you're here.
2: I love hearing about when Pasha was broke because he's like the bougiest motherfucker I know now. <laughs>
1: Times were rough back then and I am definitely enjoying myself. You
0: know, if you're not broke and you don't sleep on the couch, you won't appreciate sitting in business class because you have to you have to experience the lows to appreciate the highs and vice versa.
1: By the way, Optina, I just want to say this guy has four <laughs> and one
2: maybe we won't share that.
1: Sorry about about all that, uh, Abteen. let's get back to your story.
2: Sure. So,
0: I mean, I've had an interesting background because before poker, I've lived in three different countries, now three different states in the U.S. I've lived in California, Texas, now New York for the past seven, almost eight years. And, uh, you know, I immigrated from Iran when I was a kid. Uh, you know, uh, initially, you know, I was nine, we fled Iran. My, my father was in the Air Force, in the Iranian Air Force. We fled, went to Germany and then stayed there, got our German residency, ended up getting a green card, came to the U.S. as a political refugee. It was a tough, tough battle to, to get out of Iran. I think I know a lot of people have had stories like this. I know people in your family have had similar stories, Pasha. But my, my story is interesting. The revolution happened. My, my parents actually were in Biloxi, Mississippi. My dad was taking, uh, you know, was, was actually doing training with the U.S. Air Force here in the U.S., even though he was an officer in the Iranian Air Force. He was a major in the Iranian Air Force. My mom was here with him. She was working at Lockheed Martin, or at the time, Lockheed. They went back to Iran. Then the revolution happened. And my dad got a death sentence, given a death sentence by the mullahs and it was raiding death row and you know just the world changed you know I mean this is this is t- type of stuff that's going on in Iran right now I mean the revolution is going on but basically the entire military got purged anyone that was uh, anyone that was uh, you know general or you know major colonel higher
2: up from now to like hear about an Iranian major training here with the American Air Force an Iranian national to work at Lockheed Martin I mean that, that, that blows my mind when you tell me that I'm like
0: yeah I mean today I mean I, I remember in 2003 Three, we had to go to. We went to China on a class. of One of my classmates at business school at SMU, he worked at Lockheed Martin, and he couldn't tell. We went to this class, and you know we got exchange students at Hong Kong University of Science and Technology, and he had to lie and not tell people he worked for Lockheed Martin. Cause he was afraid that either they're going to steal secrets or they're going to give him a hard time so but here iran i mean today is like a boogeyman but at the time iran and the u.s were close allies iran had bought some of the latest jets iran bought f-16s from the u.s iran was the only country in the world ever till this day to have the f-14s no other country ever has had f 14s and f-14s and f-14s was, was a very very superior weapon system that the u.s never sold to any country Except for Iran, and 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 the F-14s actually helped Iran during the Iran Rock War because they were just destroying the mix. In fact, there's I think there's three aces. You know, in order to be an ace, you have to get three three mix shutdowns, and the only three aces in F-14s are Iranian pilots. If you, if you Google that, there's a lot of cool stories about it. Yeah, so the Shah Iran, you know, helped the uh, Grumman at the time out of bankruptcy, funded them. You know, was helping a lot of defense contractors. The U.S. was selling all kinds of you know advanced weapons to the, U- to the Iranians, and all the Iranian Air Force officers were coming to the U.S. and getting training, just like you know the Saudis do today, or you know uh, you know other countries like Israel or whatever would would, would have uh, you know such a close military relationship. But Iran was the U.S.'s closest ally in the, U- in the region. And as such, a lot of military officers were very, you know, very loyal to the Shah. So when the you know, the new regime came, you know, a bunch of essentially a bunch of terrorists came and they they started purging, killing everyone. So they 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 you know the, the guy who was a general in charge of the Olympic Committee, they gave him a death sentence and hung him without a trial. My dad was given a death sentence because he went to a meeting with a few of our friends where they had talked about overthrowing the you know the, the new regime and he got a death sentence what actually saved his life is a friend of his that he had gone to the military academy with and in iran you know here you have the naval academy annapolis and then you have the west point you have the air force academy in iran there's only one academy for all three forces we don't have na we don't have a marine corps but uh, so a friend of his that had gone to the military academy with kind of had moved up to the ranks, became the head of the Air Force, went to his jail cell, said, hey, you're in logistics. We're moving troops right now. We're in the middle of war. We we're not ready. We need all the people we could get. Here's your pardon. Sign it and literally come back to to work. And so he had to go from the people that trying to execute him to go back in the military and serve for eight years. And he did. He served until 89 until the Iran-Iraq war ended. And then he got a fake passport, went to Austria, me and my mom and two sisters, went to France. We got lost on the way to go. We went to Belgium, got lost on the way to Germany, ended up in Holland, and then somehow ended up in Germany. Stayed there for a couple of years and then applied for uh, political refugee status, moved to the U.S. in 1991. So we had an interesting story. I mean, that was a journey on its own just to get the hell out of Iran. How old were you? I was nine when we left Iran, and then when we moved to the U.S., I think it was 11, 10 or eleven. I was I was
2: pretty young. Were you guys like on planes or crossing? You know, were, did you guys get on a plane or were you guys like crossing borders to get to other?
0: Yeah, we we jumped countries. on a plane. You know, went to went to Paris. You know, by car we went to Germany, and then when we came when we came to the U.S., I never forget that. Uh, we we were on a TWA flight from from Frankfurt, Germany to JFK, and then when we got to JFK, we, we were stuck at the airport because it was like some issue with the green cars or whatever. So we had to stay at the airport I think for like a 24 hour period it was annoying because I was a kid all I wanted to do is go to sleep and I was just stuck at the airport anyway we made then we made it to Los Angeles you know uh, I lived in Los Angeles from 91 to 95 so that's where I started uh, you know learning
1: English and wow you know it just it reminds me and I've said this before but I have to just say it again I mean with your story coming here and what it took to get here it's like when someone talks about the US and they just say like all these bad things and it's better everywhere else it's like you know how lucky we have it here. And when you hear these immigration stories to get here, and it's just so profound what you had to go through to get here. It's just like we have it so good. And so it really bothers me when people aren't creating, but they're just trying to destroy. And we saw that firsthand, you more so, your father definitely more so. And I know my family members, we had Uh, army members and generals inside of that when the revolution happened. It was a gnarly, gnarly time. Aptin, will you tell us a little bit about, you know, your story when you came here, you came to LA, what happened next? How did you get into this and where you're at now? And then also maybe with a twist of what did you learn from being an immigrant coming to the the States?
0: Great questions. By the way, I think a lot of families have, have experienced these type of adversities. But
1: when, whenever I see people
0: that just don't appreciate all the freedoms that we have, all the opportunities that we have, I've had to go a lot, through you know, through a lot to even be here to have those opportunities. And when I, when, when somebody says, oh, you know, we're the worst country and we're so racist and we're so bigot and we're so this and we treated everyone right, it's still the best country in the world. If you, if you don't like how things are, go to Venezuela, like go to North Korea, go to some of these- Go to Iran. Go to Iran.
2: My barber sat in a boat from cuba like not a boat like a like a like a handmade raft bailing out water for like seven days straight as the current took him and like three or four other guys and they like showed up like their mouths were swollen because they ran out of water they're beaten down by the sun huge swells like who gets on a raft to cross an ocean to come somewhere right like that it's nuts.
0: I encourage everyone that's listening today. Find you a friend. Find you someone from Cuba, from Vietnam, from Korea, from someone that moved here, Russia, Ukraine, wherever, where they came here from a totalitarian country, and go pick their brain for an hour. Go pick their brain for two hours, and find out about what they had to go through. And then I think it it makes you appreciate what we have here. And as bad as we think it is, it's a million times better than the next, the second best place in the world. And and we, you know, we just take a lot of these these freedoms, a lot of these things that we have for granted you could decide you wanted to be anything in the world. You could be a professional poker player. You could be in real estate. You could be a professional podcaster. You could be a YouTuber. No other country in the world allows you the opportunity to do what you love and what you'd want to do. And... and I think a lot of us take that for granted.
2: We even compare ourselves. Like I hear a lot of people these days, especially like you know very uh, progressive uh, idealists uh, that compare that you know that compare us to Europe. But I talk to my buddies in Germany, and they're like, I cannot believe how well you guys integrate immigrants, right? Like you come here, and you're an American, no matter whether you're from Iran or Cuba or whatever. Once you're here, you're a Mexican American, right? And he's like, if you're if you're a Turkish guy in Germany, people don't see it that way. They don't see you as like Turkish German. They just you're, you're a Turkish guy.
0: I mean, Ger- in Germany, they used to call us Schwarzkopf, which meant that we had black hair. We weren't blonde, so be, we didn't belong there. I mean, I lived there for a couple of years. So, I mean, it's gotten better, but there's still a lot of
1: that going on in Europe that people don't talk about. Optin, is it, is this why you're so focused on the EB-5s um, and the immigration Uh, work that you do
0: it's funny it's uh i got into eb5 by pure accident i'll I'll get to that it was i I worked a couple different hedge funds when i was uh, early in my career and i got into eb5 by pure accident but i I think why i have a lot of passion for it because i was one of those people that moved here as an immigrant i know how hard it is to move to a different country i know how hard it is to immigrate so you know, I have a passion for it because it's it's my work, but I also feel like I'm helping families to have their own American dream. And to the point that I think you mentioned, Cody, I was I was actually at a conference last year in Brussels, and I'm at the same conference I'm going to in London. I spoke at it. Basically, not just EB five, but and for those that don't know, EB five is is a program that Congress passed in 1991. It happened to be the same year I moved to the U.S. But they passed this program where investors from uh, immigrant, you know, from other countries, they could invest at the time half a million, now eight hundred thousand. And as long as their investment creates 10 U.S. jobs for, for local residents, then they can qualify to get a green card and then they can get a fast, you know, fast-paced three years to citizenship. And it used to be Canada was actually the first country that started that. Then Canada, Australia, U.S., U.K. Now there are 40 different countries that do that. And every year, uh, all of us called investment immigration, all of us from all the different countries we gather, you know, one year was in Zurich, one year was in Geneva, last year was in Brussels, this year in London. I'm going next month. We sit there and we talk about all these different programs. And and I, I, I got on the panel and you know somebody was talking about the St. Kitts program, Someone's talking about the Cy- Cyprus program, someone's talking about the Malta program. And I got up there, I said, I'm from the United States. We're not bringing immigrants in. We are all immigrants. We're a nation of 330 million. Every single one of us is immigrant. Everybody came from somewhere else. And by the way, the US citizenship is the only country where when you, once you become citizen, you have every right, every responsibility, everything that a local born American has, with the exception that if you weren't born here, you can't run for president, but everything else you can become a senator you can become a congressman you can become a billionaire you can start your own business you can own property you are the exact same as everybody else and that's what distinguishes the united states i think from every other country because there's a lot of countries you become a second-class citizen a lot of the gulf countries i mean look you know the uae or, or kuwait so a lot of these countries something like 85 percent of the population are not for you know they're foreign born but none of them could ever become local they never become they never have the same privileges that the locals get and you know it's funny there was a ranking last year that you ranked the uae golden so that's the number one program in the country. And I'm like, a, by definition, you're a second-class citizen. You're never the same as the, the local citizen in the United States. Look, somebody like me and Pasha, that whose families came here from Iran, were
1: Americans. I'm actually going to back up a little bit. Can you tell what kind of work you're doing? And because it's really awesome that you're working on. You're even working on a four million square foot waterfront development. And so, just give us a little bit of your your history and your work history, and then we're going to go back right into this immigration. So I um,
0: I work uh, at, at a hedge fund. We have of uh, five funds that we manage. I run the entire real estate practice, and then I run one of the funds that's real estate focused fund. Uh, we've done now five successful projects. The the fifth one we just got paid back on. It was a, a luxury a Marriott luxury collection hotel in Nashville. We just got paid back on. We have a couple of two or three different high profile projects in the pipeline. The fund is interesting. That what I do is I have two parts of the business. One part of the business is I make traditional construction loans to hospitality, you know, multifamily condo projects, you know, big high profile projects. The other part of my business is I go and take some of our investments and I take it out with the EB5 program, essentially getting EB5 investors to co-invest with us. So in 1991, the Congress passed this EB5 program where investor could set up a business and create jobs and, and get residency. Then in 1993, they created the regional center program, which said you don't have to go create this business on your own. You could partner with essentially a fund out of the U S, whether it's a nonprofit or for profit. And they could do all the legal work. They could do all the, you know, all the paperwork, all all of the development, all of the the necessary um, stuff for you to build that project, to do that for you, and just by virtue of you being an investor into that fund, you could qualify for those jobs and get your residency. And the program wasn't very well used. You know, there's a few lawyers that kind of figured out how to do some real estate projects and do this. But then in 2007, 2008, when the market downturn happened, and it was very hard to get construction financing for real estate projects, it became very popular. And then it got to a point where some of the biggest real estate developers in the country, for you know two or three very large ones in New York started getting involved in it. And then billions of dollars started coming in. And like, for example, in New York city right now, if you go down to billionaires row 57th street, all those big condo towers, which a lot of people don't know, would not be possible if it wasn't for immigrants investing to create these jobs to get a green card. So every one of those multi-billion dollar condo towers is tied to a bunch of immigrant families that, that become the U.S. citizens and get to have their own American dreams by investing in our economy. And, and not just, not just in New York. I mean, in Florida and California, for many, many years, California was the number one destination, tons of projects. I mean, Waldorf Astoria in Beverly Hills, for example, that was an EB five project. The, the dream hotel complex is both those, both those hotels and, and West Hollywood, those are be five projects.
2: No, oh, that's great, man. Thanks for yeah, appreciate kind of providing the context. So, how going from eleven year old showing up in L.A. as an immigrant to where you're at today, running this huge portfolio of real estate for a massive hedge fund in New York, that's a pretty big jump. And I think you alluded to it earlier. You know, the ability to do that here in America. But walk us a little bit through that journey. And what that was like for you.
0: There's a couple of things that I did in my life. You know, there's there's a lot of these things that you do and you don't think anything about it. You know, you, you, there's there's certain things that happen to you and you just think they're very insignificant, but then they have a huge impact on your life later on. One of the things I did when I was in high school and I was I was in you know, I was initially in the valley and then we moved to Palmdale just north of LA, just in the middle of the desert, in the middle of nowhere. And I was I, I got into Air Force ROTC and again fall into my dad's footstep. My dad was in the air force, my mom, you know, she, she was a, a non commissioned officer just as a civilian work in the air force and then work for lockheed so i just always had that interest in get going into you know military and uh you know i did air force rotc and that was one of the best things for me i think it made me disciplined. I ended up going to Marine Corps boot camp for, for you know, for 14 days down in San Diego in Camp Pendleton. I did Air Force, Civil Air Patrol. You know, I shined my boots. I, you know, I wore a tie. I, you know, I made sure my, my suit was spiffy. And, you know, just just these little things that make you disciplined and make you concentrate, they come in really handy in your life later on. Just just a simple thing of putting a suit and a tie on to go to a job interview that it gives you a huge advantage that you don't think about. But more importantly, the discipline that you learn and, you know, treating others with respect. Every time you walk down, even to our high school students, we're saluting each other. You know, it's just little things that you don't think about. But later on, those things build the foundations of the things that make you successful later on in life. And I tell you another thing that this is this is also really, really stupid. But, um, you know, when I was when I was in high school, and I moved to Texas at this point and I was a very shy kid. I was not very outgoing. I, it was hard for me to start conversations with people. And I went and got a job with a friend of mine as a telemarketer selling credit cards. And, you know, I would go to college, at you know, during the day at six o'clock clock or whatever, I'd leave and i go work, you know, this telemarketing job, like six to nine at night. And that telemarketing job, it just really taught me how to speak to people. And it's, you know, just imagine repetitive, not being scared to have a conversation. You're basically cold calling people. Who would have thought that would come in handy later on in life when you just pick up the phone and, you know, just, just, just these little things. And, and, you know, the other part is, you know, then, then, you know, I graduated, graduated from college, went to, you know, went to a community college, got my associate's degree in computer science. Then I went to university of Texas at Dallas, played soccer there, got my bachelor's in computer science, became a Unix system admin. I realized like, you know, being a computer program was not for me. I wanted to be more outgoing, go meet people. So I was like, you know what? I want to go to business school. I applied to business school, went to SMU in 2000, applied 2001. I got in 2002 when the market was really soft, you know, the tech crash had happened. And I was like, you know what? I want to be a stock I want to go trade stocks and I want to go work for hedge funds. And I, that was my whole goal. And I just went and studied and I did really well. And, and, and you know, in undergrad, I never really study. Whatever I learned in class, that was it. And then in business school, I learned how to study. And then I started really reading things that I really cared about. I read this book, Liars Poker, and I'm like, this is fascinating. Solomon Brothers in 1985. I started reading more and more books, and then I started becoming more fascinated.
2: I love Liars Poker, by the way.
0: Yeah. It it became, in 2004, when I graduated business school at SMU, and I was part-time, and I was in a full-time program, I think there was only three people that got a hedge fund job, and I was one of them. And then I got this amazing hedge fund job, worked at a a long-short equity hedge fund. Then I went to another hedge fund i was one of the founders was mark cuban it was essentially his money we were managing great hedge fund i was working there and then i'd be decided I was going to go play professional poker. And then I left my entire career. And as a 26-year-old, I was making 300000 a year and left all that behind to go become a professional poker player, which was probably one of the dumbest mistakes of my life, but also probably one of the best things of my life. Because those four years, five years where I was a professional poker player, where I met Pasha, I learned a lot. I learned a lot about life. I learned a lot about, you know, I had two properties that I own. And some months I wasn't going to make my mortgage payments. And some months I had a lot of cash. And it's just learning how to manage your cash, learning how to run a business. Essentially, you're running a business, right? And so, a lot of a lot of skills that I learned from poker. Uh, I mean, it's just it's tremendous. Today, I use those those skills when I'm negotiating with someone. First of all, someone's BSing me, and you can read right through them. And you know, when someone you know your your bullshit detector is incredibly high. You know, there's always somebody trying to sell you something and try to get you the next scam in the poker tables. So you'll see right through that too. But you're, you know, that, those, those, those skills, I mean, it's just, it's, it's irreplaceable. I don't think you can learn that. I mean, hours and hours and hours and hours sitting there trying to read inside people's mind, you can't learn that anywhere else. And, you know, I should be ashamed of it because I ruined my career and had to jump back in real estate and reinvent my career, reinvent myself and start from scratch and redo all of it. But what I learned in poker, I wouldn't give that up because it's just the life skills that you learn, knowing who are good people people who are bad people who have your best interests in mind who don't meeting people like Pasha that I not and i know good people outside of poker right so those those are the skills that that you learn i think in poker that are just-
2: even when he's beating you you still kind of you can't help but like him
1: yeah uh it was it was funny because you know anytime i saw uh Apteen at the table uh, I'm sorry to say this buddy. I was like, okay cool, I'm gonna make some money today <laughs> No, you know it's true about the poker you said it so perfectly you you spend hours upon hours and days and years and years and years training yourself to look for inconsistent information, right? And so now when we're negotiating, at least for myself, I'm able to pick up on these little keywords and it's like, oh, red flag, red flag, that doesn't make sense. And you just store it away and you just say, okay, I think this is where I'm gonna, I can get to. I know it is so vital in my business When I'm negotiating now, because I'll I'll pick up things and there's been plenty of times um, where I'm like, guys, my team and my partner and everyone saying they will come down. Watch, just trust me on this. And they do because you pick up on little things. You always look for that misinformation that you're always going to go for.
2: Out of curiosity, how often are you guys, because so much of poker is probably being able to read a specific person, how often, what I find often in real estate, right, is I'm so far removed from the counterparty, right? You got a broker or lawyers in between, et cetera. How often are you guys able to still pick up on bits of information, you know, when you aren't direct with your counterparty? Or are you guys always trying to get direct with your counterparty so you can use that as an edge?
1: I always, always, every single time try to talk to the seller directly, no matter what. hey, can we talk with the seller? Hey, can we just, we want to pick their brain. But even then, in my opinion, the broker will know because he has conversations with the seller and it's just on you now to ask those certain questions to the broker and asking certain questions four different times to see if the story is always consistent, right? And see if there's leeway. It's just about always going deeper. So, and the broker at the end of the day typically just wants to make a sale. So you can get more information from a lot of brokers in a lot of times than just a seller but yeah Optin, go ahead i was going to use an example you know
0: you you see someone that sits at the poker table and they got their sunglasses on they got their hoodie on they got a mask on you can't see anything about them but they may as well be playing their their cards open because they don't realize just because you're not getting the tell from how they look the way that they're playing their cards i mean just like online poker you're playing online poker you still get a lot of tells about you know how how long they take to make a decision what they act how they you know you see patterns right it doesn't it, it doesn't have you don't have to be in the same room as in online poker, you still get a lot of pattern recognition. In poker, just people don't realize the way they play their hand, the way they bet, the way that they, they bet little, they bet too much. They're open books. Sometimes they may as well play their hands open. And they think just because they're wearing sunglasses, you can't see right through their soul. But somebody like Pasha is looking at them and is looking right through the soul. That's the, I mean, those are those are the skills that you know. I, you know, I don't know if you guys have read the book of Ten Thousand Hours. Ten Thousand Hours of Poker. You're going to get good at this. And you know, you may not become a world class poker player, but those are skills that, that you learn. And those are you know they. The transit to everything else in life, and, and, and another thing I think is interesting is sometimes we see people at the poker table and they're just always losing, and sometimes you see somebody, but but you don't really understand what people's motivations are. This this was actually eye opening for me. There's a guy that I met at a uh, at a poker table. I mean, at a poker game here in New York, and you know, everyone's like, oh, you know, licking the chops. This guy, you know, comes in, he's going to lose, and you know, and I'm like, oh, a fish cake, as, as 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 Pasha would call him. I sat next to the guy, and the guy is actually very intelligent. He's actually also from our home country, at Pasha. So I sat next to him, and he he explained it to me. He goes, "Listen, I lose about hundred grand a year, and I consider that business development. But I own six restaurants, and I got all my restaurant investments from the people I met at the poker table. So I look at that as an investment. And I'm like, this guy is like ten steps ahead of us. And here, everyone thinks he's a sucker. He's actually a really, really smart guy, and he's actually a great guy. And I just and really enjoyed uh, playing cards with him. But you know, there's just all kinds of different people in different parts of life. But poker is like you know, it's kind of a cross section of life, and there's people from different parts of life people that are billionaires, people that are broken, sitting on a you know, sleeping on people's couches. They all get to come together and play this game and it's fantastic, right?
2: I love that you're picking up things along the way. One of the things you said, which I thought was funny, was going telemarketing. I'm from Utah and in Utah, you have Mormons.
0: Provo, Utah is the home of all telemarketers, right?
2: Home of all telemarketers or sale talent in the world. And I, you know, I've talked to, I know a lot, a lot of Mormons and, uh, you know, and and one of the things that they always, you know, that, that every guy, when I talk to them, if you have to go out there, every, Day after day, knocking on doors and trying to get somebody to change their faith and their belief system. <laughs> Do you know how much rejection you face every single day, and how uh, you know how good you get at facing rejection? Um, but also learning how to like provide value to people outside of just you know of just your end goal. So I love. I think that every person, every entrepreneur, should spend a couple years doing whatever, telemarketing, sales, et cetera, getting doors slammed in your face over and over and over again.
0: You know, it's funny, I have younger kids, they're all like 23, 24 year olds that are part of my team. And I tell them this, and I say, this is a skill set that you have to develop. It doesn't matter if you're writing books, it doesn't matter if you're a lawyer, it doesn't matter if you're working in a mechanic shop, everybody's in sales. And what differentiates somebody that's good at their job to somebody that's great at their job is sales. I mean, something as you think lawyers, you know, and I'm licensed to practice law Texas and New York. I don't, I don't, I don't practice as a lawyer. The, the people that you know are associates for a long time, and they don't become partners. Are the people that are just pencil pushing and writing reports, which are probably really good lawyers. But the people that become partners are the people that go bring the business, and that's how you become partner. That's how you become a rainmaker. Is not by doing great legal work, by being a salesman and bringing the dollars in. And I explained to them is that everybody should have somewhere in their life, and, and sales is not easy. It's, it's a, it's brutal, and nobody wants to do sales, but everyone should have that experience, and it. It's going to come in handy in no matter what you do whether you're a founder and start your own company you got to go sell you got to go sell your your vision you got to go sell your company and Elon Musk is a salesman he has to sell all these visions to people and get people to invest you know as a lawyer you're a salesman as a poker player you're a salesman you're trying to sell people to call that hand to give you money right everything you do is sales um, I actually have a friend who's from Turkey who's in the same business as me EB5 he said when he was a kid everybody had to go work as a at the Grand Bazaar and learn sales before they went to college that's like part of the training program I'm like, that's wonderful. That people should do that here. Mandatory military service, mandatory sales. Those those, those two things will, will will be recipe for success for future. I promise you. It's
2: incredible. I love that lesson. If there's any new entrepreneur out there, I think that is like one of the best possible things that you can do. Even dating, right? Dating is sales game. At the end of the day, it is. You're selling yourself. Selling yourself. You got a pipeline. You got you know you got a close rate, and uh, you know eventually, <laughs> eventually you, go, you eventually you sign a contract.
0: You know one thing. That- that's really great i mean uh from being an investment management and i was an investment manager before I we played poker and then i came back to investment management through kind of 360 back into hedge funds but you know at the end of the day when you're playing poker you're such a fun manager you just have to cre- keep your volatility low and you have to make sure your wins are more than your losses and not going tilt so you have those crazy outliers and those skills as a poker player are very similar to those skills as a fund
1: manager and it's just it's very very translates very well i guess i'm not surprised but i do love hearing about how more and more now in hedge uh, funds, private equity firms, they're, they're training their employees and the people that work for them, the staff through poker, because you're always consistently trying to make better decisions. And it's about, we've talked about this, Cody, we've talked about temperament. And If you don't have your temperament in control in poker, you're just going to lose everything. And listen, I've done that many times where I've lost my whole bankroll many times, but I've learned from it, right? I've gotten better from it. I love everything that you hear because it's fun to talk about the poker background. But you know what's insane is that I used to find it as such a big insecurity because I was I, I skipped college I skipped an education I went and played poker and I'm like oh man what do I do next or what's my next outcome I'm not going to go back to school so it was just a really interesting uh time I mean I really love that now that I'm in real estate and now I see it as a superpower to have all those lessons
0: it really is I mean uh, have you ever played Omaha?
2: yeah yeah,
0: then you've paid your tuition, right? That's, that's the tuition to learn poker. I mean, it's not, I mean, I, people tell me I've never played poker. Should I come play? I'm like, get ready to lose thirty, forty thousand $40,000 to learn. That's your tuition. If you don't, you're not going to learn. You know?
1: I want to switch one uh, back to this EB5 because I find it really fascinating, right? Because we, I know that our immigration policy has tightened up and, and, and America that we are built on this foundation of immigration. I would like to know, your thoughts on this policy? Because it seems like, and correct me if I'm wrong, I'm a little naive on this. Is this really the only way to get your citizenship now in America, because everything has tied up? What's the state of immigration in this country?
0: You know, that's a very loaded question. <laughs> you know, uh, I'll tell you some, My and by the way, this isn't my firm's opinion. This is my personal opinion. So I'll share it with you very off the record,
2: but kind of on the record, because it is not no legal advice, just your personal opinion.
0: Yeah, no legal advice. But, but you know, it's interesting, you know, the the Democrats and the Republicans both can't get their hair out of their ass. It's, uh, you know, the, the last time we've had a complete immigration overhaul was 1991, the Immigration Act of 1990 uh, that passed in 1991. and you know the world is different than it was in 1991. You know, in 1991, they said, "Hey, we want more immigrants. We want people to come to this country." So they authorized 690,000 visas as part of the Immigration Act in 1990. It said there's family categories, and then there's marriage category, and then there's people with extraordinary abilities, and then there's employment categories. EB1, you know, it's called EB5 because it's employment-based fifth preference. The first preference, I think, it's like religious workers. Second is people of you know advanced degrees. Third, all the way down to fifth preference, and EB5 is the only immigration where nobody has to sponsor you, you know, a husband or a wife or a brother, a sister, a mother, employer doesn't have to sponsor you. You sponsor yourself by investing in the EB-5 program, which is pretty great because you don't have to, you know, rely on somebody else to control your destiny. But out of those 690,000, they put together, I think 10,000 of those visas for EB-5. And it's been the same amount of visas for all those years since 1990. Um, I think immigration overall needs an overhaul. I think, you know, n- not to get into politics. I think Democrats just make it look like, oh, the Republicans are so racist. They don't want immigrants to come Into the country. The Republicans are like, no, we want immigrants, but we want legal immigrants. But, you know, they have their own issues. At the end of the day, every country, especially a country like the United States, will build on immigration. You know, like when you see Alexandria Ocasio Cortez or Chuck Schumer that are criticizing immigration, you know, what, you know, let's, and and telling everyone to break the immigration laws. And by the way, the people that don't want you to break immigration laws are immigrants like us, because we have to wait in line and we don't want other people breaking the law. Because if you have a nation, everybody's breaking the law, then you don't have a nation, right? So they could authorize 10 million new immigrants immigrants every year by stroke of a pen they just don't want to because they don't they want to get reelected, and that's not the popular decision but essentially what you know i think half half of the parties are telling you to break the immigration laws but i, I consider i mean this is the controversial part i think it's modern day slavery because you have people that are coming here undocumented they're not getting paid 15 bucks an hour they're not getting paid 18 bucks an hour they're working at the delivery job working for you know lyft or uber or seamless getting paid two bucks an hour with no health care no benefits it's literally modern day slavery and i think I don't think the politicians necessarily have any interest to help these people become legal immigrants. And they're sitting there talking about this, you know, DACA and you know the, the Dreamers and this and that. Why are we doing this? Why are we not getting everybody? Why don't we say, hey, let's expand the number of legal immigrants. Let's get everyone to sit waiting in line like we did, like Pasha's family did, like everybody else did, and come here legally, have healthcare benefits, get get a normal living wage instead of working for slave wages, essentially two bucks an hour picking fruit in California. And I think that they don't talk about that, but if they wanted to fix that they would fix it when when they go and print 10 trillion dollars for covid relief and they get it done like this if there's a will there's a way they don't want to if they wanted to fix immigration problem they would have fixed that yesterday they just don't want it to. there's too much money involved in it for them to fix it and you
2: know eb5 well they can one group campaigns on it well they both campaign on it right and they both campaign on the fact that it's broken. And that's like, you know, that that's the crazy thing. Like their biggest win as politicians is the fact that it's broken because they can campaign on it. You no know, Republicans can campaign on the fact that, you know, there's a bunch of illegal immigration and Democrats can campaign on the fact that immigration sucks. And it's like this crazy, I've heard the reference of like building a sports team. And I feel like we could do this. We have really good labor statistics. Like where do we need labor? Where are we tight on labor, right? We know, for example, like we have a massive shortage in nurses, we have a massive shortage shortage and X, Y, and Z, right. We have the data. And it just seems crazy to me that we're not like, okay, the fed just hike 500 basis points in what nine months, like the unparalleled and historical. And yet we still don't have any unemployment, right? Employment. We still are like short. I don't know how many different, you know, I think it's millions of people to fill jobs. Um, it's it's crazy. We can't figure this out.
0: It's it's definitely a weird time in, in real estate and the markets and mm-hmm. everything right now because it's unpres- un- unprecedented times. We haven't had high interest rates. I think there's only been one time in the last forty years where the Fed's hiked interest rates five hundred basis points, and it's cra- and by the way, I think it was nineteen ninety four. They did it very fast and they unwound it real fast. So this is definitely uncharted territory.
2: But it wasn't as fast, was it? I don't. I think it was like I think it was more. Gra-
0: it was slower than this, but but they unwound it really quick too. I think it was 94, 94, ninety four, ninety four, ninety five.
1: I want to ask more about this EB-5 program. Does it take a lot for an immigrant family to come in? I mean, it just sounds like, okay, you invest a bunch of money. It sounds like this is what you do. You have an EB-5 fund and they come in and they partner with you. Now, is there any like uh, specific specifications or specifics that they they need to qualify for? Is there background checks? I'm obviously sure about that. How long does the process take? And then I can't lie, as a, a company owner who brings in investor capital, is this something that... I should be looking into into potentially bringing EB5 money in cuz you know Cody and myself both run funds for real estate and so I just want to get the specifics of this. I want to understand it a little bit more if you can.
0: Yeah, 100%. I think the short answer is yes, you should. And there is definitely a lot of demand. The history of it is the minimum investment amount was 500000 And then 2019, U.S. Citizenship for Immigration Services, which is under Department of Homeland Security, changed the investment threshold to 900000 And that essentially killed the program temporarily. And then COVID happened. And then Congress basically killed the program in June of 2021. So then this is one of the only government programs that failed not because it wasn't popular it failed because it was too popular and just with anything else you know uh, it's funny it's you know there's a lot of political debates that are between republicans and democrats but this was actually not a republican democrat thing it used to you know this used to it was a program that got reauthorized every three years i think in the, in the house it would get like 435 to like three votes against it and in the senate it would get like 97 to three against it. diane feinstein from your state always hated it for whatever reason she would always vote against it but anyway it was like a rubber stamp. And then in 2015, what really got the fights to happen was that the small states started realizing what all the money is going to California. It's going to Texas. It's going to New York. It's going to Florida. So that the top four or five more populous states are getting all the money and the money is not going to rural areas. Like let's say Iowa and Vermont. And it was, it became a classic battle between big states and small states. And so that's, you know, on one side you had Chuck Schumer, who is a Democrat from New York on the same side As John Cornyn, who's a Republican from Texas, they're all on the same side. And then you had Patrick Leahy and Chuck Grassley from Vermont, Iowa, Republican, Democrat on the other side. And it was just like, how do we get more money to our states? But you know, just the philosophical discussion is this: if you are an immigrant and you are going to move to another country, you are going to want to go to where there is a big immigrant populations of your peers. If you are South American, you want to move to Miami. If you are, you know, a lot of a lot of countries move to New York. There is, you know, New York is a big melting pot. Los Angeles. If you are Persian, you are going to move to L.A. Right? So that's where that's where all the money's going because that's where all the immigration populations are. And somebody in Vermont is like, well, why are we getting money to Vermont? Someone in Iowa is like, well, why are we getting money to Iowa? Well, one, there's not a lot of going on in Vermont and Iowa, so there's not a lot of development going on. But at the same time, investors also want to go invest where they're going to live. They don't have to, but that's what they want to do. So that was kind of the big debate. That's what tied up EB-5. And then finally, in March 2022, we got a bill reauthorized that changed some of the parameters of the program. And then it went to effect in May 2022. And And now it's becoming popular again. And then look, look at what happened. Uh, during COVID, I think a lot of people realized that the world is shut down and having a second passport for a next global pandemic. go, who knows for whatever reason, maybe a smart idea. Uh, I'll give an example. There's a neighborhood in Shanghai where all these tech founders, all the, the average net worth of people are is like between 15 and a hundred million. This neighborhood, they couldn't get food delivery. There were people that are a hundred million starving because they couldn't get food, just basic necessities they couldn't get access to. And these people realized it doesn't matter that you're worth 15 million. It doesn't matter that you're worth a hundred million. If you can't get food for your family screw this you have no freedom so those people are all looking to get out i mean what, what happened with these lockdowns in china people i mean and china used to be the number one country for eb5 then for reasons that had to do with the long wait times for for a green card it slowed down but now it may, you know it's coming back and it's coming back in a big way right now even people in the u.s are looking at a second passport right now the number one destination to portugal are, are people from the u.s and it's not a lot of investors it's probably a couple thousand people from the u.s but that's still a lot people are looking to get a second passport some people are just giving up their citizenship because they don't want to pay U.S. taxes and go and live in Singapore or go and live in, in Portugal. But there's others that are, you know, getting a second passport. And it's just for safety. It's just like an insurance policy, you know, and that, there's a lot more of that happening. And I think COVID really put that on steroids because people realize something like a global pandemic could happen. It doesn't matter what country you live in. Your freedoms are going to be taken away, including the United States.
1: I appreciate that breakdown. Would it be difficult for someone like myself? Because I, I don't know much about EB-5. I'm a little naive to it. To to bring investor money to I'm sure my fund has to be set up to be able to do that. Do you, can you only specifically start an EB five fund, or can you mix it in together with your regular fund? Um, yeah, how does that work?
0: The congressional bill, and even the the, the new bill, which is called RIA, I think the Reinvestment or Integrity Act, or whatever it, whatever it's called. Whenever we do a filing for an investor, it's actually a lot, very complicated. There's about twenty five hundred pages of documents that goes in it, and, and 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 the government doesn't take electronic filings, although they just told us the other day that they may start. So you literally have to print twenty five hundred pages of documents, but on the Project level, we do a lot of these documents for them. So when an investor does an EB5 filing, there's two parts of the filing. One is a project level stuff, which you have to show you have the deed of the project. You own the deed. You know, here are the market studies that this project is going to be successful. Here's multifamily rents. Here's office rents. Here's whatever asset class that it's in, right? So you, you have to do all that homework, create a business plan and then show all the documents, all the filings. You put that all together. And then there's also an investor specific filing. They have to show that they received their money source from legal means that it wasn't, you know, they're not tied to the communist party or terrorist organization or you know cartel and they, they got their yeah they got their money from legal sources so they do the what's called the path of fund the source of funds that paperwork along with the project paperwork gets compiled and you know an experienced immigration attorney that specializes in eb5 helps them get the filing done but you know it's 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 so it's, it's complicated it's a lot of work but you could partner with a law firm that can help you navigate that and even raise funds and i know if you That are in LA and San Francisco and your neck of the woods that I'll be happy to introduce you to. And I think it is great for a great funding source. Now, sometimes it's a lot of work It depends on you know how much money you're trying to raise. If you're trying to raise a couple of investors to do a smaller business, it's it's not that complicated. Sometimes, you know, when we're like we're doing a project, you know, it's a you know four hundred fifty-seven investors we're looking for. So that gets complicated. You have to build entire infrastructure. I have people that work for me in Vietnam, I have people that work for me in China. I'm gonna have somebody work for me in South America. So we have, you know, an extensive network and this is what we do full time, but you you can also do it you can also get you know third-party brokers that do the fundraising for you i mean you would need you would need to have your project documents done i'll help you. i mean i can help you navigate that but I, I, it is it is a great funding source and 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 also uh you know especially now when the market's getting tightened up and banks are not so much available to do funding it's an it's an alternative source of capital to so get projects uh, financed. i think it's a great source of capital just because banks are not willing to take a risk congress is telling these investors you have to create jobs and you have to take real estate risk or you have to take business risk and so they have to do it in order to get their green card. So that's a great uh source of investment. Now it doesn't mean that the project has to be risky, it just means that they have to be an equity investor and their money can't be like a guaranteed, like you know, you invest, we'll give you a guaranteed return, you get your money back. Can't be that kind of a structure. It has to be, hey, I'm investing, it may go up, it may go down, hopefully it'll go up and I'll get my money back. But it has to be
2: at risk. Is there a timeline issue with it, right? Because of the twenty five hundred uh documents that you have to fill out. So like would it only make sense for a development deal where you have a long extended timeline or would it also make sense for an acquisition deal where you've got 60 90 days max
0: yeah it typically can be an acquisition because in order for you to create the jobs it has to be a construction job so typically it has to be a new commercial enterprise what they call it it has to be a new project you can't really use it for an acquisition but there is timeline I mean typically the, uh, just a, as an industry standard the loans are five-year timeline but right now there's investors from China that have been delayed and they you know they may take 10 to 12 years so you, you also have to be willing To be involved in a venture that may take longer than your development venture, maybe. So this you know, there's good, bad, ugly. It's not the perfect solution for everything, but it's a good solution for a lot of things. And you just have to, you know, I think interview a immigration attorney or a regional center, someone that's an E B five specialist to kind of give you the good and bad, the ugly and make it make a decision if it if it makes sense for your project. Also, there's a lot of misinformation out there and there's a lot of bad information out there. So I can help you navigate to you know talk to the right people because there's folks out there that are speaking on behalf of E B five that don't know the, the ins and outs as well as some others just like in any industry
2: no absolutely uh it's really interesting man i uh I will definitely I'm, I'm sure posh and me will probably be picking your brain later we both uh both do a little development on the side
1: <laughs> i'm done with development
2: you're done with the development i i gotta build back this fucking hotel after we got hit by the hurricane so
1: where, where is
0: where, where is the hotel
2: i owned a hotel on sanibel island um and it got leveled during hurricane Ian. It was a cat five, uh, eye wall, literally the eye wall passed its longest possible path right over my hotel beachfront, no barrier, all the wind and everything coming straight up onto the island um, and it leveled it. But it's kind of, it's, it's, a, it's one of those blessing in disguise in that because of the zoning, we never would have been able to tear it down and build something new. Um, So we're actually, we're actually going to be able to build a brand new hotel, which we never would have been able to do with because of the zoning in the city. Um, only an act of God would have allowed us to do that. So it's a little bit of a blessing in disguise, but I'm kind of becoming an unwilling developer. <laughs> yeah,
0: the company I'm on the board, we actually have a hotel. Was, we have the, the Ritz Carlton in uh, St. Thomas and that got destroyed, Hurricane Irma. And we rebuilt it now. Uh, now it's an amazing hotel and it's completely rebuilt. And much nicer than it was before but uh, unfortunately we, we have to deal with uh, situations like that but sometimes having insurance also helps to, to, to get those rebuilt
2: yeah no, absolutely well I know you got to run in two minutes but this has been incredible um, we loved having you on uh, where can people kind of find more about you right uh, either do you have something uh,
0: yeah I, I got a I got a Twitter account I don't have a lot of followers but I think it's Uptown A23 is my Twitter handle. I think that's what it is Uptown A P T O W N a twenty three. That Uptown used to be my poker nickname just because people couldn't pronounce my name Upteen, so they would call me Uptown. That was that was another
2: <laughs> Uptown. I love it, man. I love it. Hey, thank you so much for coming on and and sharing your story with us and a little bit about the EB5 program. I'm sure me and posh are gonna be hitting you up soon.
0: Absolutely. It was what a joy to, to be on here and tell my story and thank you guys for taking the time and, and, and having me on. It's been wonderful and look forward to catching up and uh answering any of the questions and finding out a little bit more about you guys.
1: All right, everyone. All right, so that's it for this episode of Road to 100. Thank you so much for watching or listening. All the links and resources that we mentioned are gonna be linked down in the video description or in the show notes and depending on where you're watching or listening to this. If
2: you're listening to this on a podcast platform, then please make sure to leave us a five-star review because it truly helps new people to discover the podcast. Or if you're watching this on YouTube, then you can leave your comment below and ask any questions, insights, or thoughts about the episode.
1: Thanks so much for watching. Don't forget to hit the subscribe button.